Proverbs chapter 14. I'm just going to read the first two verses to start off with tonight, and then we'll open up in prayer. Verse 1, if your Bibles are open, Proverbs 14, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time this evening. Thank you for a dry building to meet in tonight. We do thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Uh, Yesterday, Lord, we celebrated uh, the independence of this nation. We continue to pray that this nation would turn back to you. Lord, we do uh, so appreciate and are grateful for the freedoms you've given us, Lord. Uh, But we pray that this nation would uh, would recognize that all that we've been given is but by your grace. And Lord, we respond to your grace with humility and surrender. But Lord, let it happen first in the household of God that we first and foremost would humble ourselves, give you our lives. You gave every bit of yourself to us, and we want to give ourselves back and surrender to you. And Lord, we pray that that would be the reflection of our hearts even as we open your word. Teach us, humble us. Lord, make us more like you and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time. Speak to every heart. And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. So we'll go through at least maybe up through verse 10 tonight is the plan. So we may get a little further than that. But no matter what, that's kind of uh, the point where I think we'll get to. Proverbs is always a little different study than any other book because it's just not, it's not crafted the way some of the other books of the Bible is. So if you're new to some of the Wednesday studies, it's a little different journey. But um, we're working our way through and we're about halfway, we're almost halfway through. But when you look at uh, this passage, the next several verses as well, not just this one, uh, the first two verses, but uh, as we read verses 3 through 10 as well, many people have yet to follow Christ. When you think about verse 2, for example, where it says, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. So some people despise God, according to what Solomon writes here. And many people, it may not always be despise, but reject or ignore. And many people have yet to follow Christ because they're not sure it's really going to be worth it. Right? I mean, I remember when I was, you've heard part of my testimony or different parts of it, and I shared some of that just a couple weeks ago. I mean, we truly, I'm sitting there on the chair debating, if I go forward, I'm not going to be able to play beach volleyball on a Sunday. Is that going to be worth it? And I started thinking about hell and heaven. That really drowns things out. If you truly do get uh, an understanding from God, it really gives perspective to some of the kind of paltry things that we would consider valuable and important that really aren't. But a lot of people, you know, they haven't yet decided to follow Christ because they do know it's going to be life-changing. They don't know what that necessarily means, but they've seen life changing in your life, and they're not sure they want that. Even though they might like you and say, I'm glad you found something you can lean on, or something that makes you happy, or something that gives you peace, or things like that. They know it's going to be life changing, but again, they're just not sure what is that impact going to be to them. Are they going to have a rich young ruler type thing where God's going to say, all right, I want you to give up a lot of things? Is it going to be something uh, that's going to be uh, a significant change in the way they do life? Well, yeah, there's going to be changes. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I just say this little prayer, and the rest, you just kind of go back and do whatever you want. No, it's going to be change. 
people aren't sure. But Jesus said, remember, he said in his own teaching that people were to count the cost of following him, didn't he? He said that we were to count the cost. He said that in the book of Luke. He said in uh, Matthew chapter 13 that finding him was like finding a pearl of great, great price. And he said it was of such great price that if you found it, it would be wise to sell everything you had for that one pearl. That's what he said. Now, that may not be what people want to hear. People say, well, I'm not sure that he, that was he really that serious? I mean, now, you and I have not found a literal pearl, but we found something far more valuable. We found salvation. And we had to decide in our uh, mind, Lord, is it worth it to forsake the past and to follow you? He said, follow me. Remember, Peter and them, they dropped their nets. Why? Because they realized it was worth it to leave the nets behind and to follow Jesus. But even as Christians, after we've been saved, after we've come to Christ, we're following the Lord. If everyone here is honest, we've probably all had a fleeting thought. Sometimes a fleeting thought says, is this really worth it? Right? Is this really worth all the, all the difficulty? All the... You ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan? I mean, that was forever. People have been saying, man, not easy to get through these things. It's not easy to go the opposite direction of the world. But those fleeting thoughts, and I hope that they're just fleeting, because, by the way, the enemy, all kinds of strange things can come into our mind even after salvation, right? We, we still have a flesh there. It's not easy going the opposite direction of the world. It's not easy going the opposite direction of our flesh. But I hope that if you have that fleeting thought, is this really worth it? That you're walking in the Lord and you're walking in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would quickly say, yes, it's worth it. By the way, the Holy Spirit would never say anything but, right? And that he would not only, when the Lord speaks to me, I don't have some audible voice, but I immediately have a thought that I know, because I know the word, lines up with Scripture. So in other words, if I have this immediate thought, yes, it's worth it, where would I get that answer from? Satan? No. The question is, is it worth it to follow the Lord? Is it worth it to do things God's way? Is it worth it to obey the commands of the Lord? And if your immediate response to a fleeting thought is, is this really worth it? Yes, it's worth it. That comes from the Lord. If the thought was, no, it's not worth it, you should throw in the towel, guess who that's from? Right? So it's pretty simple. And then if, you, and then if your mind says, yes, it is worth it, the Lord will usually back it up with someone in the Bible a scripture. Oh, you'll remember, oh, Job made it through, right? Daniel made it through, right? They would have said it was worth it. The apostles would have said it was worth it. So Moses would have said it was worth it. Even when he didn't go to the promised land, you see him show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he would have said, hey, I did make it here. It was worth it. We're walking with the Lord. He'll remind us again and again and again, yes, it's worth it. So we're going to look at some verses tonight, uh, probably up through verse 10, but we just started just reading verses 1 and 2, and I think this will come into focus while well, I've titled the, the message that it is tonight. So starting in verse 1 here, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down uh, with her hands. Um, this is probably, those of you that, in, in, that have been in our ladies' Bible studies, you've probably heard this verse quoted in various ladies' studies. Uh, there's a lot of verses in Proverbs that are great uh, for specific studies that women would go through. And there's uh, obviously a lot to say in the Bible uh, to men as well. And even this same verse 
would absolutely apply to men. You could put, you could put the wise man builds his house. Uh, so it certainly applies to men and women, and both men and women can, can damage and destroy their own house and their own family or, or can strengthen their own house and build things up. And I even believe, uh, you know, not to, because this verse does focus on the woman here, but I believe that history, the statistics, uh, and examination of cultures around the world, uh, certainly in our own country as well, would find that men are the bigger offenders at tearing down the house. Sorry, guys. This is, you know, it's, it's more often that men leave women pregnant, right? And just abandon and never, never help out. It's more often that men are the problem, that they just bail and just don't take the responsibility that God has given. But, again, either men or women can have a huge impact positively or negatively on the home. And we'll look at, we're going to look at verse 2 from the perspective of the men. So verse 1, we'll look at the perspective of women, uh, but verse 2, we'll look at the perspective of men, because we don't have time to go through detail in every single thing here tonight. And just the role that both would play in the family. So even though men or women can both play this uh, positive or negative role, Solomon here and the wisdom given him by the Lord is both encouraging and warning women or wives, mothers, of the influence they have in either strengthening or weakening the home. Wouldn't you all agree that mom plays a big role in how the house is going to run? What the tone of it's going to be like? Is it a fun place to come home to? Is it a miserable place to come home to? Is it stable? Is it peaceful? You know, there's a lot of different things. And, and again, obviously, the, the husband or the father uh, plays a big role here too. But let's look at what Solomon's addressing. Now, God, by design, has created women for a reason and men for a reason. I am glad the whole world is not all men. And in my house, it's hardly any men. So... Uh, it's me? Yeah, you, you relate to me. Okay, so you know what that's like. Yeah, it's me and three girls and my wife. So, But if it was all dudes, that would, uh, that would be boring to me. Um, even those of you that have all boys, you're glad that there's one female in the house, right? You know, nice to have different perspectives and things, and God has made us different. And God has given women um, this role of wife, mother, uh, that can and will flourish that role, anyone that God gives it to, they can flourish in it. Even if they never intended to be a mother or they never intended to be a wife, they never thought they'd get married or whatever the case may be, uh, once they're in that place, if they know the Lord, or if they come to know the Lord, and they embrace His design for their life, they can and will flourish as long as they say, Lord, this is what you say to do. You wrote the design book. You wrote the owner's manual. I will follow these things. And I'm talking about the heart. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's things that uh, women can do equal to men. There's things that, that can be interchangeable. But the heart for I accept how God made me and is designed for me, that he wants me to be a wife or he wants me to be a mother. And what does that mean from a scriptural standpoint? And that's what we study uh, here in the Word. What does the God mean by that? God has a design for us as men and a design for us as women. Um, there are things that a dad brings to the table that are just different than a man, and there's certainly things that women from a maternal standpoint or just the way that she can relate to children, uh, not to mention, obviously, we're made different uh, biologically and everything else. But 
The design matters. Do you guys agree with that? That the design matters? Like, it's summertime, we got flies coming around. Again, I hate flies, they come in the house. I could take a tennis racket and try and kill one. Because functionally, if I land it right, I can kill a fly with a tennis racket. But it's going to do some damage, isn't it? The design matters. When we just say, well, I'm just going to take tennis racket because it's shaped kind of like a fly swatter, and I, I'm going to hit this lamp as hard as I can, and that fly is going to die, but the lamp's going to die too, right? But if you take a fly, it's, got, it's flimsy, it's much lighter, you can hit, and the lamp will survive, but the fly won't. The design matters. The things that, that God, as God designs and we start saying, well, this doesn't matter, just kind of mix it all up, everything, it's not going to work the same way. Now, how does a woman build up her home, build up her family? Because he, he says two things here. The wise woman builds her house. The first part is an encouragement. The first part is a, yes, you can be a great key in your home becoming strong. How does a woman build up her home? Well, the first of the commandments, you know that Jesus gave. It gave to everybody. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first primary thing is that uh, any woman that wants to see her home strong, make God the number one love of your life. That's where it starts. Because he'll, ne- he'll actually help all the other stuff come into, come into play, come into focus. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added. So if you're saying, what? How am I going to arrange my life? How am I going to arrange my time? Do any of you ever struggle with prior, prioritizing the busyness of life? Well, Jesus said, seek me first. This is true for uh, wives. It's true for mothers. true for men, too. Seek first the kingdom of God. And when those things uh, start to be always number one in your life, then God will start to say through the Scriptures, this is how to orient where you focus. And we stay in the Word. If we're seeking first the Word, we'll be in, we'll be in the Word. We'll be in prayer. And then the Holy Spirit, you, you know, First John talks about this, that in some respects, he said, you don't need a teacher following you around. I mean, you're only, you really listen under pulpit ministry type teaching, Sundays and Wednesdays. Some people just Sundays, depending on their work schedules and things like that. Maybe you listen to some things on the radio, but the rest of it has to be, you have to have a desire to read. You have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have to be in the Word. But then the Holy Spirit will say, no, no, your voice tone is wrong to the kids. That will never work. You're just going to stir them up to anger. So the Lord will say, hey, you follow me first. I'll then teach you how to... uh, how to really flourish in this role. So as a woman cultivates her relationship with God the Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost, this becomes the foundation of a strong home. Psalm 127.1, many of you probably know this verse, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in what? Vain to build it. So for any woman that wants to say, I want want to strengthen my home, I want to see uh, the marriage flourish. I want to see a strong relationship with my kids. I want them to follow the Lord. Well, first and foremost, you have to invest and cultivate in that relationship with the Lord. And if that happens, then the Lord is helping you build the house, and you're not really having to build it yourself. You're building it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you got to read the Word. you got to pray over things. Pray through things. I mean, just talk to God, a relationship. Uh, and then the Lord will teach us 
all of us, to be encouragers. You've got to encourage your kids. To ask them questions. Talk to them. Encourage your husband. You're not to be, begin the design roles, you're not to be competing with your husband. You ever seen spouses that look like they're always competing with each other? I have. I'm not talking about just funny stuff here, playing Monopoly or something like that. I'm talking about you get around certain couples, and you're like, I'm not sure they even like each other. Competition of who is smarter, who, who's done more, who's achieved more, who's more successful, who's got a better education, whatever it is. You're not to be competing with your husband, but complimenting him as God has given different strengths to both of you. Not just design you different, but even each, every couple's even different. Your wife might be better at one area that someone else's wife isn't, and vice versa. Now, certainly the same is true for the men, too. But it's not, um, uh, it's not wise to have a critical tongue and a complaining tongue. You know, God, we talked about this last Wednesday with our prayer, God despised when Israel became complainers. A complaining spirit, when, when, a, when a person complains constantly, guess what the kids will start doing? Complaining constantly. There's a critical spirit, they'll have a critical spirit. If you gossip, they'll gossip. If you slander, they'll slander. All of these things will be picked up and they're really bad habits and they tear down uh, the spiritual health of the home, but it also tears the home itself. Um, and so all of these things are very important the thing to understand is that in the home and in a marriage, we're not to be self-centered, self-absorbed. Anything that is self-related or becomes self-focused sabotages the home. A constant focus on what's in it for me will sabotage the home. Competing, just apathetic. That'll tear down the home. Apathy, I don't care. I don't care about any of it. I don't care if the clothes ever get washed. I don't care if this happens. I don't care what happens. I just Apathy is not good. Unforgiving. He said, if you can't forgive men whom you have seen, how do you expect your Father in heaven to forgive you? Unforgiving. Inflexible. We can't be inflexible. We have to say, you know what? It's really not that important at the end of the day what color this paint is. In eternity, it will not matter. Inflexible, stubborn, manipulative, or manipulating. Again, that critical tongue, anger, all of these things. Now, again, this could go both ways, men or women, but Solomon here is talking to the woman, saying, look, um, a woman who builds up her house, it's going to be encouraging. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be focusing the Lord. It's going to be living for the Lord. But then you have this other option, tearing it down, and we know what that looks like. Let's look at verse 2. Some of the men, how it might apply to the men. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. Now, this doesn't have to be looked at in the context of the household. This can be looked at uh, just in the context of any person, but we'll look at it. We've looked at, we have so many repetitive things in Proverbs that will sometimes look at them in a narrow band uh, purposely. So let's look at how this might apply to men. We looked at the women in verse 1. If a man does not fear the Lord, he will ignore God. 
or even despise God. Either one. Now, scripturally speaking, if a person ignores God, the way God looks at it, they do despise him. Okay? So we might, we'd, we'd make a differentiate. Well, I, I know my neighbor. He does not despise God. He just doesn't care about God. Well, in God's view, he actually despises him because he despises grace. He spurns grace. So therefore, uh, from God's perspective, it is. But, but I understand from our perspective, we may not see it. We just kind of see that, well, no, they just don't really care. But God doesn't want us to be apathetic towards him or despise him. He wants us to love him, to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've seen this all throughout our study of Proverbs. A man who fears the Lord will walk upright. It's a guarantee. doesn't mean that he'll make a fortune. doesn't mean that he'll be the most uh, popular person on earth. Matter of fact, Jesus says the opposite. He said, you know, Beware when all men love you. Everybody thinks you're the greatest, and it's probably men will love you. That it's it's going to be um, some difficulties, but you'll walk upright. We saw this in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow death, not crawl through it. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You you take some bumps and bruises, and it's not going to be easy to get through the battles of life. But a man that fears the Lord will be what? Shepherded by the Lord. I'm revisiting some other studies here, right? So, we, so you don't forget uh, what we talked about on Father's Day. God is near those that really revere him and that really surrender to him. Very near to those that, you know, that your worship is not just on a Wednesday night, on a Sunday, but you endeavor, Lord, just keep me worshiping you. Constantly talking to the Lord. Now, a father that fears the Lord will make that evident in the home. Joshua said, and you all know this verse, Joshua 24, 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A father that serves the Lord says, hey, everyone in the house, we all need to fear the Lord. We all need to turn to the Lord. We all need to serve, by the way, <laughs> means that we all give effort to our worship of the Lord. Give enthusiasm to it. Charles Spurgeon said, children will imitate their fathers and their vices, seldom in their repentance. If the father is fervent for the Lord, he doesn't have to worry about having a great implosion to repent from, to stay close to the Lord, to fear the Lord, and then the children just follow. But if there is a, you know, just kind of, well, I'm apathetic, and then there's years of not in any way having a love for the Lord, vices will come. Well, now I have, my kids have this temper. I, where, where did this come from? They have no desire for the Word. Now they're grown and married, and they don't, they don't go to church but a handful of times a year. Where did this come from? Where would they learn these things? If women fear the Lord, they'll fulfill their calling. If men fear the Lord, they'll fulfill their calling. Now, a man that fears the Lord, back to what we talked about in the household, uh, he also will do the same thing. He'll be an encourager. He won't be competing with his wife. He will not tear the kids down. He won't tear the neighbor down with his tongue. He'll have 
a wise tongue that speaks and builds people up. As a matter of fact, if the kids don't, you know, the kids come along, they walk in the house, they start gossiping. A wise dad that fears the Lord says, hey, 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 what are we doing here? We don't talk like that. They're made in the image of God. They don't join in. Uh, a father that fears the Lord or a man that fears the Lord is going to walk upright, but he's going to lead other people into walking upright. Let's take a look at the next verse. Um, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9, but we're going to come back to 4 by itself. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 9, but we're going to come back to verse 4 by itself. And the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will pre uh, preserve them. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. Now these verses, I kind of put something up here. The faux life versus the faith life, verses uh, 3 through 9. You know faux means kind of artificial, fake. And why would I call this the faux life versus the, uh, the faith life? Well, in verses 3 through 9, uh, again, all throughout Proverbs, but we're just looking at this one section. All throughout Proverbs, there's this, always this contrast. Foolish, wise, foolish, wise. And so you see these contrasts, just like in verse 1, the foolish woman versus the wise woman. And the same continues here in this kind of comparison or contrast of two different approaches to life. There's God's approach to life, and there's our own, there are, there's our own approach to life. But our own approach really isn't life. I don't, why would I say the faux life? I don't think most people intend on living a fake or faux life. I don't think that they wake up and say, I want to live a really artificial life. I don't think that's what people are saying. I don't think that's what the unsaved world, that wasn't what I was saying when I was unsaved. Were you saying that? No. We thought we were finding what would fulfill us. I don't think people go out saying, I hope when I buy this diamond engagement ring, it's a fake. Right? They're not hoping to buy the wrong thing, but it's possible to buy. If someone's really fraudulent and you don't know diamonds real well, it's possible for someone to fool you. Or, or one that was in really bad condition and uh, not worth anywhere near the cost, it's possible to get fooled. Um, we discussed this past Sunday. If we're willing to bow, the spiritual and the eternal blessings will flow in our life. Spiritual and eternal, not necessarily exactly what uh, we are hoping for uh, before salvation, but the Lord gives us this heart and desire for the spiritual things. But from the beginning, when you think about this faux life or fake artificial life versus this life of faith, all the way from the beginning, go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Satan sells people on the idea that they will be far happier and there'll be no consequences if they live exactly the way they want to. Has that changed from the Garden of Eden? No. The, the strategy is the same. The complexity is just because it, now you have to 
market this to 7 billion people. And you've got to do it in different cultural contexts. And you've got to do it in all kinds of different ways using mediums. But from the very beginning, he basically, they had instructions from God, you do this, life will be incredible. It's from God. Satan comes along and says, no, no, no. That you will never find happiness through what God just told you, ever. You need to live life your own way. You, you, want what that's, you want what's on that tree over there? Just go ahead and take it. You eat it, you're not going to die. Fingers crossed behind, right? You're not gonna, immediately anyway, right? You're not going to die. Not gonna, you're not going to have any consequences. God offered eternal life. He offered perpetual happiness with no death. Satan offered a counterfeit life, didn't he? That for a period of time, some of what he said might have, you know, take for example, while you're actually eating the fruit, what if it tasted amazing? Right? So while you're eating it, you would be thinking, God was holding out on us. This is really good. This, Satan's right. But it was a counterfeit. God still gives mankind a choice. And you see in these verses, that uh, starting in verse 3, uh, you can choose a mouth of pride for your whole life. You could choose a mouth of pride, but it says the lips of the wise will preserve them. Those of us who say, no, I want to die to pride, we're preserving not only our life, but other people that would say, tell me, how did you, how did you get to the place you don't have to self-promote yourself anymore? You don't have to live this way anymore. You don't have to be uh, prideful and arrogant. You don't have to lie to get by. Verse 5, a faithful witness did not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. You know, this is the, the world lying is so pervasive in our society. We've talked a lot about it. It's just, it's normal. But it's not normal with the child of God. God says you can't live that way anymore. There's Scriptures say liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean we'll never tell a lie anymore, but we can't go on living the way we did before. So, if you, if you would lie anytime, any place to just kind of make yourself look better or cover up this situation, God says you can't, you can't do that anymore. The Holy Spirit's in now. You can't, you can't live in such a way that's dishonest. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it. What is this? They scoff. They don't think the word of God is true. But knowledge is easy to him to understand. We can uh, trust that the Lord will give us understanding. Verse uh, 7, go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. You're not going to learn much. You're not going to gain much from someone who doesn't follow the Lord. You know, there's a lot of advice. There's, there's limited advice that I will take from people that don't know the Lord. There's lots of areas where, you know, that it's fine. Hey, you're a plumber, you know plumbing, I don't care if you're saved or unsaved, right? Although, the deeper integrity a person has, the better too, right? You want people that, you don't, you, you could have two plumbers, they could both be brilliant in the actual plumbing capacity. But what if one's honest and one isn't? Which one do you want? Your final bill will tell you which one you want, right? Now, I don't 
we don't know of a way to dis- discern that all. You know. But when you do, once you start to see, I, I tell you what, when I see people in whatever sphere of their life, they, if they lie in areas that are not their professional area, guess where I don't really trust them as well? Their professional area. Because you, know, you ever work with people and they, you, you catch them in lies, but then are you saying, man, I really want to promote this person? Because now you have to entrust them with responsibility. And you say, well, they lied about this, and they lied about, well, that's just my personal life I lie about. Like politicians, they think, well, if I lie about this, you don't care about, I won't lie in the public things, just my private life. Right? So I don't want to seek wisdom. I don't think any of us are going to find wisdom for those that uh, are not following after truth. It doesn't mean that. Uh, again, thankfully, there's uh, people in the world that uh, do have some level of, say, no, I, I try and live by a moral code, and that's good. But what's better is to live by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, by following after the Lord and truly having a fear of the Lord, not just a moral code. Verse 8, wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Goes and talks some more about, again, just the uh, deception that's in the world and just uh, how honesty is, is so uh, hard to find at, si- at times. Fools mock at sin, verse 9, but among the upright there is favor. Um, God is for us, but he's definitely against those that mock at sin. If we hate sin, doesn't mean that we don't have our times where we fall and we say, Lord, I can't believe I, I blew it here. But his favor is upon us because it does bother us. We don't mock at it. Well, hey, it's no big deal. Not a big deal. Uh, yeah. So that, that word just slipped out of my mouth in front of the kids. Not a big deal. No. If you were, if you love the Lord, you'd gather everybody together and say, that should have never happened. And God will give favor to those of us that admit mistakes and allow the Lord to fix them as instead of just saying, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. No. Part of our spiritual maturity is to obviously to confess and repent of things like we had the Lord's Supper. I don't know what you were confessing or repenting each person in your heart. It's important you do that, but some things have to be made right so people understand that you don't mock sin, that it's not... A, I've gone, you ever gone back and apologize to an unsaved person? They're like, we don't have, you don't have to apologize for that. But I do anyway. I'm like, no, I do. Because I answered to the Lord. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have gotten angry about that or whatever it may have been. Let's look at verse 4. So we have the faux life versus the faith life. And that's uh, you know, Satan selling people on, hey, whatever you have to do, get ahead. You have to lie, do it. Whatever it takes. It'll work out for you because if you can step on a, a few heads to get where you need to get to, it's good. But we live by faith. We, we can't lie to get ahead. We can't uh, cut corners. We say we trust the Lord that God will take care of us and will do things that honor the Lord Jesus Christ and even things that would be career-limiting moves, things of that nature, because we must do what the Lord's asked us to do. That's the life of faith. And then let's look at verse 4 um, by itself. The shallow life versus the deep life. Now, this is uh, a passage that maybe the first time you ever read it, 
save, you're like, well, I, don't, I can skip right past this. I don't know what in the world this is talking about. And it's agricultural in nature or something where there's no, no ox in the trough is clean. As much increase comes from the strength of an ox. Well, that's great to know. I'm not sure why I need to know that. I'll never own an ox. Uh, don't plan on owning an ox. Maybe if it was written about a lawnmower or something, I'd get it. But, um, but here's the thing, and what verse 4 is telling us, among many things, I, I love this verse. Um, I've marked it a number of times in my Bible. Uh, it's a verse that I really find is, is really a uh, great picture and understanding of how God wants to work in every believer's life. The Lord has, and he will continue to call all of us into deeper waters. If you're saved, God wants to call you into deeper waters than you're in today and, and have you continue to be able to go into deeper depth, deeper depths of faith, more self-sacrifice, that you're willing to have a deeper commitment. The Lord is always... Uh, the things that Peter and Paul could do at the near the end of their life were because they continued to wade into deeper and deeper and deeper waters. Same with Moses. You look in the scriptures, they progressed in the faith, taking these next steps, taking these uh, bigger steps. Jesus will not have us stay right where we're at, but he wants us to become influential in fulfilling his kingdom and his plan uh, for our lives, but also for others. Because when we fulfill his plan for our life, it will touch other lives. In, invariably, if, if our life is fully surrendered and we continue to take those steps. I mean, I mentioned Moses already. Do you think that Moses' steps of faith had any impact on anyone else in the children of Israel? Of course. But he's an easy example, but it's true for all of us. God wants us all uh, to have our life stretched for the glory in the kingdom of God. Here we have a farming analogy, and the Lord says, let's say the Lord says to any one of us, uh, you need to provide food for others, um, and you may need a team of oxen to do that. So if I says, hey, you're gonna, you have a plot of land, I want you to provide food for other people. And you say back to the Lord, well, how am I going to do that? And God says, you need to get a team of oxen, and you're going to start working with them. By the way, when you get a team of oxen, you need the oxen, and they need you, right? You need the oxen to, 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 to till the land, uh, but the oxen will need your care and your protection. But plowing and planting, if God says, hey, I, I, I want you to take this on, it's going to be hard work, isn't it? It's not easy work to, to till the land. It's not easy work. Uh, to have a team of oxen to take care of them. But um, not only is it hard work to till and plant, it's also hard work to harvest too, isn't it? So when the crops do come up, if the Lord sends the rain like we had tonight, that's going to be hard work there too. And now if you never had any of this and, you know, you just, uh, God says, hey, I don't need anything from you. You just sit right there and drink iced tea on the back porch your whole life. You don't need to grab any oxen. No one needs food. No one needs anything. Everything's taken care of. You just sit there and sip iced tea for the whole rest of your life. Everything's taken care of. Well, then your stalls would be clean, wouldn't they, according to the verse? 
Where there's no oxen, your trough is clean. Everything is nice and neat. You don't have it. There's nothing, no one messing up the property or the land. You don't have to worry about things going wrong because you don't do anything for it to go wrong. There won't be an increase either because it says with much increase comes through the strength of an ox. But apply this to the rest of our life as well. This is just an analogy for those of you ladies that have had children. Had you decided to just skip pregnancy and labor, you would have never had to have the pain, never had to have the discomfort, never have to have any kind of postpartum anything, recovery phase of anything like that. But you would also have missed moments of joy with your kids that you could never describe to someone who's never had kids and you couldn't duplicate with other things. True? But you could skip it. Say, I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. I used to have a colleague uh, when I was in the business world that never wanted kids. Him and his wife made the decision they were not going to have kids. He would always paraphrase. Well, he didn't know he was paraphrasing Scripture, but he was. He was paraphrasing this verse, whether he knew it or not. He would always say, no kids, clean carpet. No kids, clean carpet. It's true. If you don't have kids and you invite no other human beings into your house, you can probably keep it clean. By the way, you can't, as a Christian, no hospitality, clean carpet. Same thing's true. If you want to love people, you're going to have to know that when you invite people over, sometimes something's going to get broken. If they have kids, I can guarantee you something will get broken eventually. It's a guarantee. You can get mad about it, or you can say, well, maybe this is uh, God's way of telling me that this stuff isn't going to last forever, and God cares more about people, and he does doorknobs, right? This did not happen in my house this weekend. I have nothing broken, so I'm not speaking to people that have visited recently. But in the past, I've seen this stuff happen. Moms and dads, your, your lives could be easier if you had no kids. But ask someone that's a grandparent when they held their first grandkid, if they would trade that they ever had kids. It's deeper waters to be a parent and have to disciple other people, isn't it? And have to be responsible for them economically and everything else. Now, some of these parents might give their kids back, but they wouldn't give their grandkids back. But uh, We could have a simple, simple, you know, when the Lord called me to be a pastor, and I, could, and I said, you know what? I've seen some people that just do a little church in the house. Just three clicky families forever together having church. Just our little clique of five wonderful Christian families that love the Lord and we're our own little church and kind of thing like that. Now that flies in the face of go ye into all the world and reach the nations, right? So you could do that, but... And you could keep the trough clean, but you wouldn't have to worry about near as many issues. But you wouldn't have converts either, except for you know, just those that are inside the families. It'd be simpler, but we wouldn't be able to reach the lost. We'd never even see the joy of some new convert who's 25 years old giving their lives to Christ because we would just be in our own little clicky thing, just kind of, uh, you know, the little church home thing. We wouldn't see the baptisms. We wouldn't see the new families. We wouldn't see the new relationships. When I look out here and I see different families from all over the country, 
and different people that have come in. I would never trade knowing the relationships that I wouldn't, if we didn't have a church family, I wouldn't have met half of you. More, more, way more than half. And you wouldn't have met each other. And some of you have great relationships now, but that's because we're willing to say, Lord, what are the deeper waters you want to take us to? Moving to this location, it was harder work. There's more grass to cut. We didn't have to cut any grass at the previous location. Now we have grass to cut, but we also have more things we can do on the grass. We have more people that we can minister to. More kids means, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're actually outgrowing the, the, the youth downstairs. We have a problem right now. We, we, some of our, I asked all of our leaders to fast and pray today, and so they've been fasting and praying today uh, because we are running out of space in the downstairs basement. There's too many teens. Where there's no youth group, you don't have this problem. Where there's no oxen, the trough is clean. Where there's no youth group, you don't have to worry about youth. You can be your own little clicky four families in a house, and you don't have to worry about that. But we have to consider it's the Lord. But you know God has answers for all these things, right? This isn't the first time he's crossed these kind of paths, right? So he'll give us wisdom on how we'll have to handle that. We may end up needing a third modular. Lord, if you quit sending kids, we wouldn't need this. God loves kids. And in the coming weeks, I'll be, uh, by the end of August, I want to have uh, some meetings after the service. We talk about children's ministry and our youth uh, for every parent that has a kid from zero, well, not really zero, whatever what starts, uh, that, but all the way up to 18. Why? Because we're already looking at strategy for 2018 and things that we need to, all of us, be in the same boat to say, hey, these things are really important. Our children are important. We want to serve them the best we possibly can. We want them to be able to grow. We want to uh, have everyone understand, hey, these are the ways you can be praying for these things because you know, we will eventually need a third modular out there and we're going to have uh, more servants that will be needed because when you have more kids, the needs grow. Uh, certainly as a pastor, I mean, I could, uh, um, my life would, I, there's pains I would have never had to go through if I said, God, I'm not going out in those deeper waters. There's pains I would have never had to go through, and I would have avoided them altogether. But some of the pains in your life, God uses to grow you the most. Did you know that? You know? Once you've worked with a team of oxen, back to the analogy he used here, you work with a team of oxen, you can help other people work with a team of oxen. You can save them. Isn't it nice when you get to save someone else some pain? Because you've learned something and you can transfer that knowledge. By the way, uh, you know, you guys know I got saved at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, the, the teens are getting together with Calvary Chapel Raleigh. Pastor Steve at Raleigh, he got saved, at Cal- um, or he really grew. He was there at Calvary Fort Lauderdale for like 11 or 12 years. And so you can see when God uh, does a work in a ministry, it spawns new work, doesn't it? So there's an increase, as it says here. Uh, with the oxen comes an increase. We've got, a, we've got these teams that are going on the mission trip. They could have said, I am not wasting $1,200 to go to El Salvador. No way. That, that can buy a lot of good stuff. Not going to waste $1,200 to go. But some of you, that uh, raise your hand if you went last year. How many of you would trade ever meeting Emma? Just that alone. Or what you saw God do in your life. 
When you get to heaven, you won't think much about the 1200 bucks. You won't. But the people that you saw come to Christ, they'll be there with you. They're part of the increase. God can replace the other stuff anyway. You kind of start to say, well, the things of God are worth it. Worth investing in. More people. More difficulties. More, uh, you know, things that you have to, challenges you have to come through. But God calls us to go through these things. The children of Israel, they couldn't just inherit the promised land. They had to go through armies to get there. But God says, when you get when you get through, you'll love me more and you'll appreciate these things. We're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. We're not commanded to uh, just kind of sit there and say, I'm not going to take on anything. When we get to another part of Proverbs, it talks about fear. and This can be related to as well, where I'm a afraid of failure, I'm afraid of this, or just laziness, all of it, we have to say, if the Lord told us to be fruitful and multiply, we need to do it. We need to disciple. We need to reach out. Last verse, verse 10, and we'll close here. You kind of shift gears here, but it's a good one to close on as well. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. So we're totally shifting gears to close this last verse, but what does this mean? The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its own joy. At a certain level, people can only empathize or rejoice with you to a certain extent. And the same is true. You, because what God brings into your life, trials, pains, difficulties, at some level, it's just God working one-on-one with you. That makes sense? The good times, the great moments, you can try and help people see, look how awesome this is in my life. And they'll kind of, hey, that's great. But they can't really relate because this is something that God is doing with you. Now, there's something else here, though, as well. The heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. I think there's something else to be seen here also, and that is some people are a complete stranger to things that have happened in your life, but some people are not a stranger to things that have happened in your life, either by relationship with you or they've experienced the same thing, so they're not a stranger to a certain trial. Then the ministry can be stronger. That makes sense? Right? Two cancer survivors relate to each other in a way that someone that hasn't had cancer and someone that has don't relate to each other. I've seen it many, I've gone to hospitals, and when I'm visiting, when I see one person that has experienced this kind of tragedy, another person, they minister to each other much more effectively than walk in there and say, hey, let me introduce you to the most fittest, handsomest person on planet Earth, and they just want to like saddle up next to you and give you a few words of encouragement. It doesn't work the same way, does it? Right? So there also, I, I believe this is in here as well, a stranger does not share the joy or the pain, but two moms that have both had a, are brand new mothers, they kind of share each other's joy without anyone having to really explain it because I'm a brand new mom, you're a brand new mom, and they can kind of share that mutual joy. So I believe also this is not just the, the kind of private you one-on-one work with God, but also the fact that uh, God gives us some common experiences, 
that we are not strangers to someone else. Paul talks about that you comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. If you you can't relate at all, God will put other people in your life. But even when you have people that can relate to you, even when you have people that can minister to you, you still go home to your own bed all by yourself sometimes. And who do you ultimately need? The Lord. Who do you need to kind of remind you of joy? It's the Lord. Two places I want to turn your attention to as we close. Turn with me real quick to Lamentations chapter 3. And we'll close here. I just want to point a couple that maybe these minister to you. You can circle them. You can hold on to them. I'm thankful for people that are not strangers to the trials I've been in because they've ministered to me. I'm thankful for people that are not strangers in my life because they're good friends and they genuinely care about the good times and they genuinely care about the difficult times. But I also, and more so, am thankful that the Lord is there when other people are on vacation and couldn't minister to me if they wanted to or they're tied up at work. And so you need the Lord, right? Because he's always there. He resides in our heart. In Lamentations chapter 3, um, starting verse 21, it says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, but his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Meaning that you just kind of wait quietly with the Lord through certain things. You can share and someone that's not a stranger to your pain can relate and they can minister. But at a point, they have to go home and they have to leave the room and they have to be somewhere else and you're still left by yourself, right? And then you need the quietness of the Lord that can relate because Jesus sticks closer than a brother. He's the closer of the friend. He's always there. You wake up in the middle of the night and you've got no one there and you have a thought, the Lord is the one to minister to you then. You have joy and you, ha- you want to express it to somebody and no one else cares, just start praising God, right? You get to praise him quietly, you get to wait on him quietly. And then I don't have time to go through it, but you can write it down in Psalm 119. And I don't have time to go there, I've got to close, wrap it up here. In Psalm 119, starting in verse 75, I think I marked it here. Psalm 119, you can look at these verses. Psalm 119, verse 75 through 79. Just how the Lord works through us, through things you're going through. He'll be there. He's not a stranger to your pain. Jesus was acquainted with sorrows, wasn't he? But he also knew how to rejoice, didn't he? He knew that as well. So we'll close here. God wants us to have a heart for others and their needs and be able to minister. But the Lord knows that our limitations hit a wall at some point and they need what only the Lord can provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word tonight. Uh, We know that to follow you is not always easy. We know that there is resistance from our own flesh and certainly the enemy. But Lord, it is worth it. It's worth it to see uh, your plan unfold in our life. It's worth it to see your kingdom come, your will be done. It's worth it to see uh, new converts birth to the body of Christ, new families brought into the family of Christ. It's worth it to see 
lives transformed. It's worth it, Lord, uh, to lay down what we think uh, we are entitled to and instead see you replace it uh, with something far better. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just remind us, uh, Lord, when thoughts come in, uh, just remind us, Lord, that not only is it worth it, uh, but you are going to do far more than we could ask, think, or imagine. Just as we looked at uh, Sunday, Lord, uh, in Ephesians, we thank you for this time, this night, in your, uh, in your word. Uh, strengthen and encourage us. May each of us here, men and women, be those that strengthen and build up our home because we seek first the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. And I just pray, Lord, now may the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift you up lift his countenance upon you, and give you peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.